All right, good morning. You know, over the last couple of years, uh, when COVID um, came into being, we, uh, for quite a while, we just stopped taking the offering, you know. Um, normally in many churches, you have an offering, and, and we've always, uh, for many, many, many years, we, we always did it during the beginning of, in the, during the worship time, and, and the reason we did that was, for the obvious reason, uh, I hope, is that it is worship. You know, when we give to the Lord, it is worship, and, and to separate it from the time of worship um, is not really the best thing, but we haven't done that for a while. Maybe sometime we'll return to that, um, but just so you know, in case you visited here and you've never heard us mentioning anything about tithing and offering, uh, we still take tithes and offerings, <laughs> and we, there's a box over there on the wall, and so um, when, when you do do that, if you could put it in that box and... Uh, and the ushers will take care of that and, uh, and, uh, and praise the Lord for that. And uh, so I just wanted to share that with you because it's something uh, we don't talk much about. And honestly, it's not one of my favorite topics to talk about. But it is necessary and it's good for us and it's healthy for us to give to the Lord. Amen. Amen. And, um, but I never want um, to be in that place where uh, that it becomes something other than what it's supposed to be. And so I'll just leave it at that. Uh, this morning, if you could please turn in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12. We've been in this chapter a long time, and for four weeks, this will be our last week. And, and I don't make apology to that, um, but it is a lengthy chapter. There are, you know, 50 verses, and there's a lot of stuff in here, and a lot of things that we need to go through, and uh, it's important for us to do that. And if you remember, Jesus... In this uh, chapter, he was being um, upbraided by the, the legalists of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees, and for performing miracles on the Sabbath, and, and even uh, healing a man who was demon-possessed, and uh, allowing him, after the demon had left him, the, and, and the man was now able to see and able to speak, but prior to that, he was blind and mute. And Jesus healed this man, and the Pharisees took, um, they didn't like that, and so they accused him of casting out demons by the spirit of Satan himself. And, and by doing so, they had uh, blasphemed against the Holy Spirit, or very close to doing it, and I, and I think that they probably were already at that place where their hearts and their minds were made up. There was no, no going back at this time for them anyway. And, and not that that was true for every single one of them. And, and it certainly wasn't true for everybody in Israel. But they were slowly on this track as a religious, uh, the religious leaders themselves first. And then the people of Israel. They, they were getting to that place where Jesus wasn't fitting what they thought he was going to do. They thought that he was going to throw off the yoke of Rome and then usher in the kingdom of heaven. And when he didn't do that, or when it appeared like he wasn't going to do that, they didn't want anything to do with him. And so it's important uh, to remember that. And so, um, and, and as the chapter went on, Jesus also said that, uh, that you will know a tree by its fruit. And certainly the lives of the scribes and the Pharisees, they, they were showing to the whole world and showing to all of their countrymen that their hearts weren't right. And Jesus saw that. 
And he says, you'll know them by their fruit. If the tree is good, then the fruit will be good. If the tree is bad, then the fruit is going to be bad. And, and immediately on the, the, the cusp of that, let's read uh, verses 38 down through verse 42, uh, hoping to get down, and, and we will, by the, by the end of the time together, we'll get down through the very last verse, uh, verse 50. But let's just read together now. After this um, interview of the Pharisees with Jesus, notice what it says in verse 38. It says, Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered them and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. And the queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. So, the danger of signs. Here they're asking for another sign, and another sign. And do you think that if Jesus gave them a sign, do you think that they're going to want another one? Yes, they're going to want another sign. And then you give the baby. It's like giving baby or giving, giving baby to a candy. No, giving candy to a, well, that may work, but uh, giving uh, candy to a baby, once you give that to them, they're, they're, they're liking that. It's nice and sweet. It, it, it appeals to the flesh. And so <laughs> they would never seek, they would never stop seeking for a sign. It, it wasn't enough. It was always something more. And we have to be careful with that in our day, too, folks. I mean, many of us don't see miracles in the sense of, of things that are going on. I, I believe God does, still does miracles. He's doing it all the time. He's healing people of sicknesses. He's causing people who were once riddled with cancer in a certain organ of their body, and then a few weeks later they go in to have a CT scan, and, and the doctors are scratching their heads. I mean, that's happened. And it's happened a number of times. God can and does heal. And the news is not there with the, you know, the news at 11 cam, you know, and they're, you know, showing it and, and no, no preacher standing up and going, yes, I, I, I prayed for that person last week. And that's why they got healed. It was, you know, you know, but no, these things happen all the time. And, and who gets the glory when, when things do? Jesus ought to get the glory. No pastor, no preacher, no televangelist. And certainly no doctor should get the glory. All glory goes to Jesus. Amen? We need to be careful of that today because like giving candy to a baby, if our diet in in, in our faith is only looking for the supernatural and the things that tantalize our flesh and and get our attention, and it's it's like candy, it's like cotton candy, and we get a steady diet of that, then we're not going to really be wanting to feast on the real meat of the word. We're not going to be 
uh, excited about the, 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 the scriptures anymore. We're going to be looking for the latest fad. We're going to be looking for the latest thing that's going on in the church. Watching the latest movie, whatever that is, or following this pastor's book that he's got out, and, and following this and following that. And before long, we're just scattered about trying to just, you know, the excitement, the excitement, you know, as if Christianity is not exciting. I tell you what, Christianity is very exciting. Our walk with the Lord is exciting. And if it's not exciting, we have to ask ourselves the question, what's the problem? Is the problem with God or is the problem with me? Because if I step out in faith and I'm walking in faith and I'm walking close to Christ, things are going to be exciting. It's not going to be a dull moment, folks. And most of you know who are walking close to him, you know that your life is not dull There is always something going on. And unfortunately, there's a lot of strife and there's a lot of struggles, isn't there? Because for the first time in your life now that you're a believer, now you know that there is a real battle going on. Does anybody notice there's a battle going on? And I'm not talking about in Russia and the Ukraine. I'm talking about a spiritual battle. If you're not aware of that right now, you've been asleep There is a battle going on for the souls of men and women, for our children. Boy, the devil is going after them. Oh, if you feel like being a girl today, you can. And, you know, we'll provide you with all the resources necessary to, you know, to give you the pills and to uh, even state-funded money to help you um, get a change. Go through a surgery because, you know, you shouldn't be restricted in only being, you know, who you were born with. You know, the sex that you were born with? I'm pretty content with that. But why is it that formidable time of of a person's development, when everything is kind of crazy anyway, let it work out. It works itself out in time. You don't need to be giving them this stuff. So we live in a time that is, there is a spiritual battle going on. And we need to be aware of it, right? So notice in verse 38. What it says. It says, then some of the scribes and the Pharisees, notice some of them, not all of them were there, not all of them answered Jesus, but they wanted to see a sign from Jesus. And it was some of them, and not all the scribes and the Pharisees were present for this meeting. We know that there are at least two who were Pharisees, who were part of the Sanhedrin, the ruling class, the the ruling uh, council of Israel. Nicodemus and, and uh, Joseph of Arimathea. These were two men that were Pharisees that were part of the council of the Sanhedrin. And I doubt that they were among these men seeking a sign. The Holy Spirit would, had been changing the hearts of these men every single day, little by little. No long were they in, in league with their colleagues who were being critical of Jesus. Remember, it was Jesus who had met Jesus by night in, Rome, uh, excuse me, in John chapter 3. And he met him at night. And remember, it was Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. It tells us in John's Gospel chapter 19 that these two men, finally, when Jesus was dead on the cross, they went and they took him down from the cross. It was a bloody mess. And Levitically speaking... They made themselves unclean by touching a dead body. Now they weren't even able to take part of this uh, uh, Passover. But they thought he was worth it enough to miss a Passover. 
to not be able to do everything that they would normally do because they had touched a, a dead body. And not only that, but they came, they took him down, they, they, they packed him in spices and wrapped him in cloth, strips of linen and spices. And now no longer were they silent witnesses. Everybody knew who they were. Are you associating yourself with Jesus? Guilty by association. Have you ever felt that way as a Christian? Have you felt guilty by association? But some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered and says, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And unfortunately, the scribes and the Pharisees, they only saw Jesus as a teacher, uh, like the rest of the rabbis that they, they revered and adored. But he was more than that. Isn't Jesus more than just a good teacher? See, all the world religions see Jesus as just a teacher or a holy man. And, and even the Eastern mystic religions like Hinduism and Buddhism, they all have a respect for Jesus, but they don't believe that Jesus is the son of the living God, almighty God come in human flesh. What does it tell us in, the, uh, in John's gospel that the word became flesh? In the beginning was the word and the word was God with God and he was in the beginning with God. And the Word was God. And then in verse 14, And the Word, whoever this Word is, the Logos, became flesh and dwelt among us. So God became flesh. And we know that that is in the person of Jesus Christ. So they said, We want to see a sign from you. But Jesus did an incredible number of signs. You know, and healing uh, the demon-possessed man and restoring his sight and his speech. Was another miracle really, really necessary? Was it really necessary? Because some people, no matter what happens, they are not satisfied. That is why seeing is not necessarily believing. You've heard that phrase, seeing is believing. Well, that doesn't require faith, does it? If I see it, then I don't need to exercise any faith. But believing is seeing, isn't it? And the Pharisees, they saw a lot. They saw the miracles. They heard some of the messages. They heard some of the sermons on the mount. They were hearing things, and they saw with their own eyes. And certainly, they should have been going through the scriptures and saying, could this be the one? And certainly, if they just looked and were open-minded, they could have seen that this is the one who was born in Bethlehem, who ultimately went to Nazareth, who came out of Egypt because of the, the census that Herod had put out. All of these things were foretold in the scriptures, and they should have been listening. They should have been watching. He was right there, truth embodied right before them, and they didn't even see it. So seeing is not believing, but believing is all of a sudden seeing. And this is the first time in the New Testament, underline this word sign in verse 38, because this is the first time that this Greek word is used in the New Testament. It's the very first word, first time that you see this word sign. It's semi-ion uh, uh, is, is, is the Greek name of it, the Greek term, word, excuse me. And it means a sign or a wonder, a token or a miracle. And that's exactly what it was. And this is the same word that was used in John's gospel when Jesus did the miracle of turning water into wine. Do you remember what it said? In John 2.11 it says, This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. The beginning of signs, and it's the very same word, the beginning of miracles that Jesus did. 
But the religious leaders were always needing more signs. They just weren't satisfied. Sort of like a spoiled child, not content with just one lollipop. You want another one on the other hand, right? Always wanting more, always wanting more. So seeing is not believing, but rather believing is seeing. And what does it tell us in Corinthians chapter 1? Paul says to them, he says, For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign. There it is again. They require a miracle. I must have something to hang this thing on. I want, I want proof. Show me proof or I'm out of here. For the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews. Or excuse me, we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews. It's a stumbling block. And unto the Greeks, it's foolishness. But to them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, we don't necessarily need miracles. If Jesus did nothing else in my life other than saving my soul, and there was no other evidence in my life that he was working, he would be justified, and I, would be sa- I should be satisfied if I really understand the depth and the truth of what he's done. See, that's the key, isn't it? It's based on what the Word of God has said that he has done. See, we have to believe that. And see, we live in a time where we're getting farther and farther away from this and more and more into something else. Movies and books and other things. More than anything, this is the thing that you need to be spending your time in, folks. This is it right here. The Word of God is not going to deceive you. It's not going to lead you astray. And in fact, it is this that everything else, we see everything else through the lens of Scripture, or we ought to. Our worldview is based upon what we know to be true in here about the nature of God and how he deals with us. Our worldview ought to be shaped by nothing other than the Scripture. Not the Republican Party, not the Democratic Party, not the Independent, it doesn't matter, any party. There is only one Christ, the living word and the word of God, the written word. There is no confusion. There's no disparity between the two of them. No disparity. But we don't need a sign. Signs can be, signs can be deceiving. In John 7, 7, 17, it says, If anyone wills to do his will, he will know concerning the doctrine. Notice, if you know Christ, then you will know the doctrine. It's not the other way around. If you know Christ, if you know to do his will, then you will know concerning the doctrine. And then uh, Proverbs 3.32, for the perverse person is an abomination to the Lord, but notice his secret counsel is with the upright. If you know Christ, he gives you that secret counsel. I don't need a miracle. I need him. And if he chooses to do a miracle, praise the Lord. I love that when he does. And especially if there's, you know, he receives the glory for it and we don't touch it, right? Vision and direction come from believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And it says in Psalm 25, 14, the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him. Yes, have a reverence for him. The secret of the Lord is with them who fear him and he will show them his covenant. Isn't that beautiful? I don't need anything else. I need him. I need his word. Anything else is just icing on the cake. But Herod, remember, Herod 
uh, Ant- not Antipas, but Herod um, uh, the Great, he wanted to see a miracle from Jesus. He was looking to be entertained. It tells us in Luke uh, chapter 23, verse 8, says that when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle. And, and it's the same word as signs that we've been looking at in, chapter, in verse 38. Same exact word. He wanted a miracle. Just entertain me, Jesus. I'm bored around this palace. You know, I've got all this food and all these servants and this harem of women, you know, and I've got to remember their names and their birthdays, and that's a nightmare. But anyway... I'm bored. I want, I want some entertainment. I don't want the court jester to come in and do this little thing. I, I need something new. Even Herod wanted and hoped to see some miracle. Her, you know, and Herod Antipas, um, uh, Herod Antipas' father, Herod the Great, he wanted to see Jesus, remember, uh, so that he might kill him. And some people will never be satisfied no matter what happens. You know, it's like putting a bowl of peas and carrots in front of a child and then putting some cotton candy. What do you think is going to happen? Actually, if you put that in front of your husband, what's going to happen? If you put that in front of me, what's going to happen? I'm probably going to eat the cotton candy, not because I care. I just like the way it dissolves into nothing. It's kind of freaky. Peas and carrots or cotton candy? I... You know, and you want to take the cotton candy. And the cotton candy wins every time. But that's not going to necessarily increase my faith and give me a greater foundation in my walk with Christ. A lot of times it can be a, um, something that just gets in the way. But notice what he answered in verse 39. But he answered and said to them, An evil and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except for the prophet, except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. So let me ask the question, why was it evil and adulterous for them to seek after a sign? Well, number one, they had an evil heart of unbelief. Unbelief ruled them. There was such an abundance of proof concerning who Jesus was and the miracles that he did. Think of it. All of the prophecies concerning Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his second coming, not to mention all of the sermons that he gave and all of the messages and the miracles that he performed to validate those messages. They had an evil heart of unbelief, number one. The second thing is, why was it an adulterous nation? Well, because instead of seeking God, they were seeking things that would satisfy their eyes and their flesh. Just, just give me a show of some kind. Just do something to appease this flesh of mine. And the religious leaders and others, they were committing spiritual adultery in their unbelief. And it was spiritual adultery because they replaced the true and living God with rituals and their own works. No longer was he front and center. So how can a seeking, why can seeking a sign be so dangerous? Why can seeking a sign or a miracle be dangerous? Again, there's nothing wrong with miracles. But if that's what you're seeking, and these men were seeking a sign when there had been so much. They didn't need another sign. What they needed was to be born again. But why seeking a sign? Why is it dangerous? Well, simply put, signs or miracles don't automatically prove or validate that God is at work. Isn't that true? 
And we're going to see it more and more as time goes on. And even into the future yet, there are things that we're going to read about the future coming after the church is removed. And I hate to even say that even up until the time before the church is removed in the rapture, there is all kinds of deceptions going on. I don't know if you're aware, but a lot of things are happening. But wait until the church is removed, and then we've never seen anything like what's coming Because God is going to send a delusion upon the world when the church is removed. And it's going to be so intense. We thought the deception that we've been experiencing over the last two and a half years, and yes, it has been deception, and I'll just stop there. It's going to be even worse then. So incredibly intense that people are going to lose their minds. Yes, possible to get saved, but oh my goodness, It's going to be really tough. But even Satan can do miraculous signs. That's why we can't always assume that a miracle is is, is something that's good. It's something that will affirm my faith because even Satan does miraculous signs. Remember in Exodus chapter 7, it says that the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, and and this is before he led them out of, of, of Egypt into the promised land or into the desert for 40 years. But prior to that, it says, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, when Pharaoh speaks to you saying, show a miracle, and there's the word again. In the Hebrew, it means the same thing as it does in the Greek. It's just a miracle. It's a sign. It's a wonder. When Pharaoh speaks to you, God says, saying, show a miracle for yourselves. Then you shall say to Aaron, take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh and let it become a serpent. Let it become a serpent. And then in verse 10, it says, So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh, and they did so just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it did. It became a serpent. But notice, it says, But Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers, who were not filled with the Spirit of God, but rather manipulated by the devil himself. So Pharaoh called in the sorcerers, and so the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. Do you see that? Even the devil, even the other team can do miracles. For every man threw down his rod and they became serpents, but Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods, which I really like that. But the first plague of Egypt... <laughs> The Moses, you know, Moses turning the waters of Egypt into blood. It says in uh, Exodus 7.22 that the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments as well. I don't know how you can qualify that since they're already blood. Maybe there's another pot and go, we can do that too with a little wand and go, bing. And then, you know, I don't know how exactly that happened. But they did so and Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. And even in the second plague, the second plague of frogs in Exodus 8 Verse 6, Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land. And the magicians did so as well with their enchantments. And they brought frogs. I mean, think of what a horror that thing is. The better miracle would be to thwart God, wouldn't it? You bring frogs, well, I'm going to send them back with our enchantments. But such is the thing of the devil. He's just always destroying no matter what, right? And then the third third plague, and here is where it ends. In verse 8, chapter 8, verse 17, And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and struck the dust of the earth. It became lice on man and beast, and the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. Now the magicians so worked with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. They could not. God says, okay, that's enough. I'm going to let you guys think that you're doing well, but there's a point. 
And then for the last eight plagues of Egypt out of the ten, the last eight of them, God didn't allow the dark arts of the magicians of Pharaoh. He didn't allow them to replicate the miracle, which were all judgments against the gods of Egypt. They had many gods. They were pantheistic. So why, so, um, why can seeking a sign be so dangerous? You, can't, you don't know who it's coming from. If you're just following a sign, you can be bamboozled very easy. You can be deceived very easily. Paul, speaking of the time during the Great Tribulation, says that the beast or the Antichrist, who we know is coming on the scene, he may even be alive today for all we know, but he's going to come on the scene after the church is removed, right? He will be given great power to deceive those on the earth that weren't taking up in the rapture. So at that time, Satan will empower the Antichrist. Literally, whoever this man is, he doesn't know it, but there's coming a time where he will actually be indwelt by Satan himself. Satan himself, not a demon of Satan's, not a fallen angel, no, the devil himself. And it's probably not going to look like how you think it is, you know. I mean, many of us seen The Exorcist and everything is just dark and ugly and there's a, you know, a, a, a goat's horn sticking out of the guy's head and blood. All, you know, it's, it's not like that at all. I'm sure he's probably going to be the finest dressed, most eloquent man you've ever seen. And the women are going to be going, oh my goodness, he's such a hunk. And the guys are going, man, he's such a great warrior. Love this guy. He's got all the answers. He's going to speak all these different languages. He's going to woo the hearts of the world. Satan is not like what you think with the pitchfork and horns. No, sometimes he comes. Sometimes the devil comes in a blue dress. Sometimes the devil comes in a very slick, very well-mannered, very clean very moral person, at least from the outside. Peter tells us, I think it's Peter, he says, don't be surprised when Satan even makes his ministers as angels of light. Don't be surprised when that happens because we're expecting the pitchfork and the tail and the boo, and it has nothing to do with that. We may be all be surprised But Paul said these things are coming upon the earth. In 2 Thessalonians, what does it say? The coming of the lawless one, and he's speaking of the Antichrist, who will be revealed in the future after the church is removed in the rapture. He is going to, according to, he's going to be, um, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power. God's going to allow him to have all power and signs. And there's our word again signs, miracles, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. Why? Because they did not receive the love of the truth. If you don't receive the love of the truth, you're opening yourself up for these deceptions. Even right now, but especially then, if somehow you give your heart to Christ after the church is removed, and you're like, oh, they were really serious about this, you better be really careful. It is so much easier now to receive Christ than it will be then. The delusion is going to be so great. And the lying lying wonders and the signs, the miracles this man is going to do, people are going to lose their mind. And it will validate who he says he is. The man of sin. But they won't know him as the man of sin. Do you realize that unbelievers don't care about the Bible? They don't even believe it, so they don't read it. Maybe they hear little bits and pieces, but when the church is removed, you know, it's going to be interesting. Let me, let me continue going on here. And it says that um, 
And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive, notice, the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. I wonder what that lie is at that time. Can I offer a suggestion? I'm not saying this is it, but could it be this? It could be. When the rapture occurs, there's going to be millions of people on the earth that are going to vanish in a twinkling of an eye. Could the lie be, it's just a thought, I'm not saying that it is, could this man call down fire from heaven and, and make miracles and, and so people are like, and then he says, I know where these people went. In order for us to progress in this wonderful society of humanity, they were taken by UFOs. They were taken by extraterrestrials to get them off of the earth so that we can progress. Now that these fanatics, now that these fundamental Christians are gone, now we can finally push through all the things that our hearts have desired for many, many years. I know where they're at. They're not here. They're somewhere else. And I'll prove it to you. And he would probably do something and cause fire to something. And people are going to be going like, They're going to lose their mind, and it's going to be very easy for them to go, we are with you, because we're scared. We don't know what happened. This event is going to be huge when it happens, and now, whatever you say, I'm going to do, because you're telling me they were left, they were taken, and now we are left to continue. We're with you. We're in it 100%. Do whatever you want. We'll do everything you want. We'll surrender our sovereignty, everything, our bank accounts, everything. We'll give everything to you. Just protect us. That they may all be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. In Revelation 13, verses 11 through 14, it speaks of the false prophet in the great tribulation. The, the, the beast counterpart, the antichrist counterpart is the, the false prophet. Did you know that Satan has his own trinity? <laughs> we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Well, Satan has a trinity too because he's such a deceiver and a counterfeiter. It's Satan the Antichrist, and the false prophet. Right? And I saw another beast, it says in Revelation 13, 11, coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. This is the false prophet. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in, the pres in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Well, we won't get into that now. But he performs great signs. There's our word again. The same word that we're in verse 38 and 39 in our text this morning. Miracles. He's going he's gonna to do miracles. And it's going to confirm what he's been saying. But it's not the truth. False signs and lying wonders. So that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs. There it is again. Which he has granted, which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and live. And you remember, he's going to be the one that's going to cause everyone to take the mark of the beast. And who knows what that's going to be? I mean, the Bible tells us that it's going to have something to do with, you know, 666, but there's going to be a devotion to him, and it's going to be global. It's going to be a global economy. There's going to be a global religion. There is going to be a global 
econ- uh, I, said, I said economy and religion, a global government, and he's going to be the head of it all. For a very short period of time, for maybe three and a half years, he's going to enjoy his dominion over the whole world. For three and a half years. Are those things happening right now? In our, can, can we see the, 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 the things that are happening that are leading up to those one world economy, the one world religion, the one world government? In the last two and a half years, if you haven't noticed that, you've really been sleeping. Those are three hallmarks that are all working in concert right now, and they're happening very rapidly, very rapidly. Don't get discouraged, saints, because Jesus is coming soon. He's coming soon. Yeah, he's coming soon. But our culture has always been grooming us to believe that only those things that we see with our eyes or experience with our senses, only those things are real. Do you realize that our culture is a faith destroyer? It is a faith destroyer. If your faith or your belief system requires miracles and signs and events, you can open yourself up to deception. That's the point this morning. These men were asking for another sign. But another sign wasn't going to save them because they'd seen so much. But we live in a time where miracles and signs all over the world, not just here in America and Christianity, I'm talking about over in the Far East. There's some strange things happening over there that people are are believing. And they're believing in these false gods because of these miracles, because they've, they've strayed away from the word of God. Believe and be obedient to the word of God. Later on in Jesus' ministry, you remember he spoke to his disciples on the Mount of uh, uh, Olives, and he said, Jesus went and departed uh, from the temple. This is Matthew 24. And his disciples came to show him the buildings of the temple, and Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. And obviously Jesus was speaking of 70 AD when the Romans and Titus Vespasian would come and sack Jerusalem and drag and, and, and totally trash the temple and everything on the Temple Mount, drag those rocks by mules and other things off the side. And they're still there today, by the way, those rocks. Those big things, I I got a picture of me standing on them in Jerusalem. They're still there from when they landed there in 70, 80. They haven't moved them because they're too big. They're still there today. When the Romans dragged them off, he says, that's going to happen. And then they said, well, tell us, when when will this, um, uh, excuse me, um, as he sat there, they said to him, Tell us when these things shall be and what will be the sign. There, there's your word again. What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one, or in the King James Version, no man deceive you. Take heed that no man deceive you. Now obviously, I believe that in verse 4 through 14, he's speaking of the time and, and we'll get into this when we get into Matthew 24, but it's either speaking of these uh, verses 4 through 14 is speaking of that time either leading up to the tribulation after the church is removed, perhaps, uh, or, or uh, before the church is removed, perhaps, or even those verses could actually be the uh, first uh, uh, part of the tribulation period. Verses 4 through 14. But we'll look at that when we get there. So for the church in 2023, before the rapture occurs, and for those those on the earth after the rapture who will go through this great tribulation, it's imperative that you don't seek signs in in and of themselves. 
Don't seek it. Don't be tantalized by things and allow your curiosity and, and your, your desire for things that just sparkle. I want, I want something new. I, I'm just not, I just can't, I don't want to read anymore. I just, I want to see something now. The better thing to do is to seek the Lord. To be a student of his word and be obedient to it. And on top of all this, there was no need for anyone to insist this constant affirmation that he was the Messiah. So much evidence was given. So when he said to them that no sign will be given to it, to this generation, except the sign of the prophet Jonah, of all the signs that Jesus could have given them, he gave them this one specifically for a good reason, because Jesus was using the account of Jonah as a type or a prophecy of what was going to happen to him. Because just as Jonah was in the heart of the fish for three days and three nights, so Jesus would be buried for three days and three nights, or for three days. Now think about this with me. It says, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Think about this with me. The scribes and the Pharisees, they had already decided they wanted to kill Jesus. They rejected him. They were excited about this idea of him telling them that he, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish, so would he be in the, buried in the earth. They knew that what he was talking about. They were excited about that because they wanted him dead anyway. When is the funeral going to be? They're excited about that part of it. And, um, but what they probably didn't anticipate was the rest of Jonah's account. Because what happened after three days and three nights when Jonah was in the fish? The great beast vomited him out on the beach. Has that happened in history? Yes, it has. It's not unusual. This is not a children's story. This is a fact, a historical fact that occurred. It's happened. Whalers have, guys have fallen overboard and they've caught the whale a few day, days later and they cut the belly of that thing and out comes their friend all covered with seaweed and fish guts. Aren't you glad you ate had breakfast this morning? It's happened and he survived. This is not something that can happen. And after he came out of the fish, he survived and his skin is all bleached, white probably. And God tells him, now go to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, and tell them in 40 days you're toast. That's what he did. 40 days and judgment is coming upon you. That was his message. Not even come to Christ, he loves you. No, judgment is coming, prepare yourself. Right? That was the message. And everyone from the king down gave their heart to God. <laughs> and it lasted for a while. And they returned to their idolatry, but they all repented. But the scribes and the Pharisees, they weren't even thinking about the resurrection of Christ because they couldn't even consider it because it hadn't happened before, somebody rising from the dead. Now, at this time, Lazarus hadn't died and rose again. You know, Jesus didn't call, raise him yet. That didn't happen until later in his ministry. So there was nothing for them that they could uh, relate to. And so at this time, when Jesus said this, they didn't put two and two together. They did have an opportunity to understand, but they were so hard-hearted, they were blind to it. You remember back in John's Gospel, it tells us that uh, when Jesus cleansed the temple for the first time, that Jesus, uh, they said to him, what sign do you show us, show to us since you do these things, since you've cleansed the temple and created all this stir and this ruckus? What sign do you show us? What miracle do you show us? And Jesus answered and said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. 
Then the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it in three days? Good luck with that. And then John pipes in with some commentary and says, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. But the Pharisees, they didn't know that. John knew that. It even tells us in verse 22 of John chapter 2 that therefore when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them and then they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Even the disciples were clueless and certainly the Pharisees and the scribes weren't even thinking about it. It wasn't even on their radar screen. You're talking about going going to the grave? Yeah, do that. It'll save us from having to be held accountable for your murder. Will he he bury himself? Will he commit suicide? It wasn't until later, even in his ministry, that Jesus even told his disciples, later on, from this moment in time that we're looking at this morning, it wasn't until later on that he would tell his disciples in Mark's Gospel, chapter 831, that Jesus would be put to death by the chiefs, the scribes, and the Pharisees and be killed and after three days rise. So when Jesus said to this to them that as Jonah was in the, you know, in, the, in the belly of the whale, so also will the Son of Man be, they didn't even consider or think he could rise from the, get, from the dead. They were probably still dull concerning the facts of what the scripture even had said. Didn't David in Psalm 69 say, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave or literally forsake or desert my soul in Sheol in the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. A very obvious prophecy of the resurrection of Christ. Or maybe they, they were also dull to the, the fact that Isaiah, what did Isaiah say? Therefore, God is speaking here in Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul unto death. That, speaking of, you can't divide a spoil with somebody who's still dead. They have to be raised in order for that to happen. Follow me? So they weren't even aware Not only were they dull to these prophecies, but they didn't believe in him, and they had rejected him. They were completely blinded. And notice that Jesus recalled the events of Jonah's life as history again, and not some fictional story. It's real. Jesus was using the event in the life of Jonah as a means to point to what was going to happen in his life. But signs or miracles were to validate the message. Turn with me to Judges chapter 6. We're going to have to go through this pretty quickly. I thought I would have time to get through the... uh, We're going to get through it. Just be patient with me. Let let me me just say this to you. There was a time, and I'm going to have to summarize this for the sake of time. But in Judges chapter 6... Gideon was a, a man who was very unsure of himself, but God had told him and told him that he would deliver Israel from the Midianites and from the uh, Amalekites and that God would do it through him. And, and he's like, Lord, how can you do this? I, I'm, I'm nobody. You know, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and, and I am the least in my father's house. house. And, and the Lord says, Go, I'm going I'm to be with you. Gideon, I'm going to be with you. And there came a point 
In verse 36 of Judges chapter 6, remember the fleece that Gideon threw out before the Lord? He says, Lord, let me put out this fleece, and if it, if, it, if it rains dew on the fleece but not on the ground, then I'll know that you were speaking to me. And God did that. And then Gideon says, well, let's try the opposite now, where the ground is wet but the fleece is dry. And he says, okay, and God did that. Now let me ask you a question then. What is the difference between the Pharisees requesting a sign and that of Gideon requesting a sign? Well, they were in unbelief. Gideon was so unsure of himself, he's just like, Lord, I just want to make sure that I'm hearing you and help me in my feeble faith. And God says, I'll help you. Even though you think you're feeble, Gideon, I'm going to use you, you mighty man of valor. And that's what he called him. You mighty man of valor. And he's shaking in his boots, and God knows the heart. Aren't you glad? I'm so glad, because some, so often I feel like that. I'm like, Lord, I can't do anything. And Jesus goes on in verse 41, he says, The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. Notice that he uses this event of Jonah's life. And these men had, had only heard from Jonah, but a greater than Jonah is here speaking to you. And yet, the men of Jonah, or Nineveh, they repented from the king all the way down. What's your problem? It's really the idea. And he goes on. <laughs> for the queen of the south will rise up in this judgment with, of, with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Indeed, a greater is so than Solomon's here. Yes, the queen of Sheba came from that place, modern-day Yemen, at the south of Saudi Arabia. She traveled hundreds of miles to get up to Jerusalem to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And Jesus is saying, she went through all that trouble, carrying all that, having this huge entourage full of spices and gold and things that she was going to present as a, as a gift to Solomon. And a greater than Solomon is here. Jesus, of course, speaking of himself. And here's the idea, for whom much is given, much is required. That's what he's saying. You guys have been given much. And these people, these people were pagans. The Ninevites were pagans. And they gave their heart to Christ. The queen of Sheba was a Gentile, and she comes and, and travels hundreds of miles. I think it's like 1,200 miles or something like that. And she believes. So what is your problem? Why are you stuck? And when an unclean spirit, he goes on in verse 43, goes out of a man, he goes through dry places, seeking rest and finds none. And then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and he takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it also be with that wicked generation. Jesus speaking to the same generation that we looked at in verse 39 there. And it seems that these demons have a, a desire to inhabit a, a, a person or an animal. We know that even in the Garden of Eden, Satan embodied the serpent, right? And we know in Matthew 28, when Jesus was speaking to the, he crossed the Lake of the Sea of Galilee crossed over onto the eastern shore over there and saw two demon-possessed men. And Jesus cast out the demon, and they said, you know, don't cast us away and send us into the abyss. Jesus had the right and the power to do that. But then they said, send us into the herd of swine, the, the pig herd. 
Send us into them. And Jesus allowed it. And so they left the, the two men, this legion of demons, many demons, went into the pigs. And isn't it interesting that the pigs are like, I'm not putting up with this. Only man will allow a demon to resign him, but a pig or an animal, they're like, I'm out of here. I'm running off the cliff. I'm not going to deal with this. But this section in 43, verse 43 through 45 is, is really speaking to the demon-possessed men are like Israel when she was in her idolatry. Before she was led into captivity. That's what this demon-possessed man is like. But after her exile, when Israel came out of Babylon, the idols had been put away, and they cleaned up their act for a while, but they didn't go all the way. And so here, now, Jesus is speaking to men there in you know, 32, 33 AD. He's speaking to the religious leaders. Certainly, they didn't have idols in the sense of wooden structures and idols like you know, wooden and uh, metal objects that they would worship. They, they, they'd, they'd learned their lesson on that, but they still weren't right. They still had idols in their life, in their heart. And Jesus is saying, you guys better watch out. You've cleaned up the outside. Everything looks good on the outside. You've you swept the floor. And it was also speaking of, because Israel had rejected him at this point. The leaders had rejected him. And he's saying, you better be careful because during the great tribulation, you're going to sweep up everything and you're going to think everything is just fine. And then seven more demons, worse than the first, will come. And let me suggest to you that that time in Israel's history that's yet future to us will be the worst in their history ever. It'll be the worst. Satan hates the church, he hates Israel. He will do anything and everything to destroy it. And he will be very successful in the tribulation. He's going to hunt them down. Many are going to be killed. It's going to make the, the holocaust of, of, the, of, uh, of the Nazi Germany look like nothing. This is why we need to go all the way with Christ. Don't just do a little bit and clean up the house and get moral. <laughs> you can't get, be moral enough to get to heaven. You need Christ. You must be born again. Being, there's a lot of moral people in hell. But being a Christian, being a blood-bought Christian is the only ticket that you're going to have to heaven. So don't go seeking spirituality by listening, some, by listening to some skinny guru over in the Far East who wears a loincloth and eats nuts and berries and burns incense. No, come to Christ. Come to him. He is the author and the creator of all things. Come to him. It's one-stop shopping. One stop. One step. Not 12 steps. One step. Whatever it is in your life that you're addicted to, whatever problem you have, there's one step, not 12. There's one. You come to Christ. Come to Christ. Have you done that? I pray that you all have, and I know most of you have. But there may be some here that haven't. I want to encourage you to do that. Come to Jesus. So finally, in verse 46, we are going to finish this chapter. While he was still speaking to the multitudes... 
talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside speaking to them. Now, this sounds like uh, not like a really big deal, but Mark's gospel in chapter 3, verse 2, has something a little bit different to say to us. It says that but when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said, he is out of his mind. So even his own family members, and yes, Jesus had a mother, and he also had brothers and sisters. The scripture tells us that, right? They thought he was out of his mind. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Um, I, I was reading something else. Um, so verse 47 says, Then one said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers, they are standing outside seeking to speak to you. And even though Mary knew a lot, and even though she kept a lot of these things that she heard at his birth, even though she kept them in her heart. She was still struggling with all this. She saw her son, Jesus, on this collision course with the religious leaders in Jerusalem and even with Rome. And as a mother's heart, I don't blame her because she doesn't want her son to die. She was even struggling about his mission and really what it meant. And, and even if she understood it, she didn't want it to happen. I mean, how could, you, how could a mother look at her son on the cross? being crucified. It's, it's the worst torture available, imaginable. And plus, it affected his family too. As he was doing these things and receiving the, the, uh, the kick you know, from all the religious leaders, think about how the family felt now. How many people really wanted to be around them and talk to them? They were guilty now by association. But many of his family didn't come to Christ until after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Yes, James and Jude, two epistles, two letters in the Bible in the New Testament were written by Jesus' half-brothers. They didn't come to Christ until after his resurrection. The light bulb went off. Oh my goodness, we never did see him do bad things. He was obedient. He was every... I can't believe it. They come to Christ, and they gave their lives. They were martyred for their half-brother. Half-brother because Joseph had nothing to do with Mary. I mean, they, she was already pregnant with Jesus before they even came together as husband and wife, physically. So they were half-brothers. They gave their life for Jesus, whom they grew up with. They knew intimately, and if he wasn't God, they would have known it. Wouldn't, wouldn't you agree? But he answered and said to the one who told him, Who is my mother and my brothers? Who are my brothers and who are my mothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. See, as the family of God, we are closer, many of us, than even members of our own family, our blood family. We have something here that unites us, right? Jesus himself, he's the, he's the one who unites us together. And there are people in this room who have a closer relationship with people in this room than they do their own blood family. And Jesus, at this time, the nation had rejected him and his own family starting to distance themselves. And Jesus is saying, okay. It's not about Israel necessarily. It's not even about you, mom, and all my brothers and my sisters. It's not even about you. This is about the church. This is about this new thing that I'm going to be forming, Jew and Gentile. Yes, Gentile. Every Jewish person is you know, shriveling up at that point. No, Jew and Gentile together, believing in Christ, making up 
this wonderful body of Christ. It's what it is. Aren't we? We're, we're made up of Jew and Gentile. What a beautiful thing. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. But not just in any unity, but a unity in Jesus, right? I don't unify just because it's the right thing to do. Well, you know, you believe that it's, you know, uh, you know that Mary is uh, the, you know, you know, the co-redeemer with Christ. No, I'm not going to unite over that. I will unite over what's true. Even if it means division. God doesn't need the world to be Christians. It's not like our team has to be the biggest on the world before he comes and gets us. No, in fact, as time goes on, the church, not everybody's going to come to Christ. There's going to be a remnant. Now, granted, that remnant's pretty big compared to the world population, but a remnant nonetheless. But the vast majority of people are not going to come to him. They're going to reject him. And even some who have professed faith in him are going to step away and say, this is not what we signed up for. I want a Jesus that will allow me to remain in my sin. I want a Jesus that will allow me to continue living with my girlfriend and having an illicit relationship with her in fornication. I want a Jesus who allows me to remain a homosexual and murder my children in the womb. I want a Jesus that allows me those things. And Jesus says, well, that's not me. That's not me. What Jesus are you serving today? And there's a lot of people serving Jesus, a different Jesus than the Jesus of the Bible. That is a problem. That's a problem. And they need to be told in love. We don't bash them. If somebody of that persuasion comes in here, there's open arms. A fornicator, a homosexual, it doesn't matter what, a murderer, whatever. You're welcome to come in here and hear the truth. And we want to love you. If you come in and create problems, we'll have to ask you to leave. But if you're coming with a sincere heart... To want to know God, you are welcome. It doesn't matter. Maybe you were a cross-dresser. Maybe you were a transvestite. Maybe you were a transgender person. It doesn't matter. Come in here if you want to hear the truth. If you really are seeking, we're going to open our hearts and our hands to you and love on you and tell you the truth. We don't want to bash you. Verse 50, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother, my sister, and my brother. Notice it's not whoever knows the will of God, it's whoever does the will. Big difference, right? The Bible tells us to be doers of the word, not hearers only deceiving ourselves. So I want, to, I want you to be encouraged and, 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 and be careful of signs. Let the word of God be the foundation of your life and your heart. And don't let anybody, no matter how wonderful the, the miracle is, if it's not bringing glory to Jesus, if it's not done in a right way, if, if it's done in such a way as to uh, go against the scripture and what Jesus has clearly told us in the word of God, if it goes against it, and somebody is receiving the glory, you have every right, and heaven is on your side to, sit, to walk away from that. Say, I'm not going to listen to it, I'm not going to believe it. We need to believe Jesus. We need to believe in his word, amen? 
I know I've kept you long. Uh, let's stand and pray. <laughs> we did it. We got to verse 50. Lord, we thank you for this day. And Lord, what a joy it is to, uh, to go and open your word and just be encouraged in it. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. And even those that may have come in and they, they, they're not so sure about all this. Lord, I pray that you would invite them and that we would love them, and that we would encourage them. And Lord, some thing, hard things were spoken today, Lord, some really kind of crazy, dark things. But Lord, this is the reality of the world we live in, and your word tells us to be careful of seeking after signs and lying wonders. Lord, we need to follow you, and we need to, we need to do this right, God. We need to open your word and read it and, and take all of it in. So Lord, I pray that you would do that to my, for myself and my brothers and sisters here today. Protect us, God, from deceptions all around us. There's so many things in the world that are just going against what you want to do in our life, Lord. There's so much that's like water on sandstone trying to wear away our faith and to get us to focus on something else, something other, some other person, some other movie, some other book, some other doctrine, Lord, help us in these days for us to be fixed. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. In the light of his glory and grace. To you be the glory, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.